I am happy to be here. Um, if I have not had a chance to meet you yet, my name is Cooper, one of the members here at RTC. Um, I want to welcome you. I want to ask you to keep your Bibles open to Matthew 6. Um, we've been, if you're new with us, we've been looking at the Sermon on the Mount for a number of weeks now. It's in Matthew 5 through 7. And we're in chapter 6. We're calling our discussion on chapter 6, The Secret Life of Jesus. And so I wonder, I wonder what comes to mind when you, when you hear that, secret life of Jesus. Um, I hope when we hear that term, the secret life of Jesus, we can still hear something of the double entendre or the double, double meaning there. Um, we've been talking about how the secret life of Jesus is the life that he lives with the Father. It seems that in chapter 6, um, he is the Father who is in secret. Uh, so there's a double meaning because uh, when we say the secret life of Jesus, we both mean that life that he himself lives with the Father and the life that he also invites us to share in. Um, and it's that, that secret life with the Father. Um, so, so in secret. So he's the Father who is in secret, and he's in secret because he wants to know who are you when no one else is around and you go into your room and shut the door to pray? Um, who are you in, this, in the secret place of your heart um, when it's just you and God? And, and make no mistake, that, that, that is who you are. That in the secret place of your heart, uh, that is the person that, that I actually want to deal with. Um, and so he seems to be saying that to us. And we get this impression from chapter 5, the previous chapter, um, you may be familiar with it. There's this repeated formula that, that Jesus uses when talking about their Jewish laws, and he says, you have heard it said, but I say to you. And it's a movement from the external behavior to the inward heart, um, where, um, and this is, um, this is where the law was always meant to penetrate them. That he gives them some examples. I'll just name two of these that he goes through a list. Uh, for example, you may have never committed adultery, but have you looked at a woman with lustful intent in your heart? Um, you, perhaps you've never murdered anyone according to the law, but have you felt anger towards another person in your heart? Um, and so what's he saying? That the human heart is where sin actually happens, that it manifests in our behavior, but it, it originates from the heart itself. And so, as a result, what we need is not behavior modification to uh, try to conform to the law. We need heart renewal. He's setting the bar even higher. We need, we need heart surgery. And um, this is staggering. But before he goes through these laws, he points to the Pharisees. These were the people that they would have looked to as the most righteous according to the law, uh, the, the Jewish law standard, and the most careful about keeping it. And he says, your righteousness must exceed that of the Pharisees. Must exceed that of the Pharisees. Um, and, and then he says at the end of chapter 5, similarly, you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That's, you, you must be perfect with a kind of perfection that is only ascribed to God. This inside-out righteousness um, that, that only, only currently is attributed to God himself. And Jesus is diagnosing us with heart disease. Um, there is no apparent cure um, for our condition. 
And so we're, we're self-deceived. We've seen that in chapter 6. And we, if we ever want to experience human flourishing, we need to get real with God. It's time to get real with God. Um, and so if you have your Bibles open, let's look there at Matthew 6, 19 to 24. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. So Jesus gives us, I think, three related images here to help us understand what's going on inside of us um, and understand the kind of renewal that, that we actually need. And um, we'll, so we'll look at each one of these three images in turn. So treasure, that's in verses 19 to 21, the eye in uh, verses 22 to 23, and the master in verse 24. Three images, we'll look at each one of these. So the treasure, 19 to 21, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. So in the sermon, there seems to be a shift now to talking about material wealth, material treasure. Um, there, uh, as Don Carson points this out in his commentary, that that verse 19 seems to be a textual link um, between where we've already been in chapter 6 and where we're going for the rest of, of chapter 6 because uh, the word treasure, where you see it in verse 19, um, it, it both summarizes the content of, in verses 1 through 18 and introduces a new section in 19 to 34. And so wh what I mean is that treasure as a word now begins to function a lot like the word reward did uh, in verses 1 through 18 of chapter 6, when he's talking about a kind of social reward, um, uh, that the Pharisees would, the hypocrites would do their righteous acts before others in public, and they would receive admiration, and he says, truly I say to you, they've received, they've, they've received their reward. Um, and so we, t we seem to be turning a corner from a social reward to a material reward, but uh, that we lay up for, for ourselves, but mainly it seems to be part of a larger question Jesus is asking in this chapter, namely, where is it that you want to have your reward on earth or in heaven? It could be social, it could be material. Where do you want to receive this reward? So he begins to talk to us about treasure. Why? I think it seems that if we want to reorient ourselves towards receiving the reward in secret from the Father, we need to take an, an inventory of where we're currently seeking that, that out, where we're trying to lay up treasure for ourselves. And so he gives us this illustration to help us think through that. Jesus um, quotes Isaiah in chapter 15 um, as he's describing the Pharisees. He says, These people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. So we're concerned with the location of the heart. Um, how do we map out where the heart is? An earthly treasure um, is, is the marker to help us locate where we are on the spiritual map. So we notice the language of do not lay up, do not gather or accumulate treasure on earth. Why not? And so immediately he, he mentions different kinds of suffering. <laughs> that 
that happen on earth. Moth and rust and theft. So biological decay and our own inability to protect our, our possessions. So he says there's, there's nothing you could possibly lay up for yourselves on earth that is not vulnerable to these things. Um, so, and I grew up in a Christian home. I, I went to a Christian college in Massachusetts. Um, I did not begin following Jesus in, really until my third year of college. Um, and I remember one Thanksgiving break, I was driving home to Amherst uh, from the North Shore of Boston, about a two-hour drive. And so I put on a, a sermon by Tim Keller. He's a pastor in New York. Um, been listening to a lot of his sermons at the time. And his sermon was called Counterfeit Gods. Uh, you might be familiar with this. And he begins the sermon with a question. What thing, if you lost it, would cause you to almost lose the will to live? What thing, if you lost it, would cause you to almost lose the will to live? He goes on to explain that whatever those things are, they're functioning in your life as God. Uh, as gods. They, they're not very good gods, but they, they, and they must ultimately fail you. They must ultimately fail you, but they are your functional gods. And so this resonated with me because how, do I, how did I begin to realize what those things were that I had given my heart? Um, it was through an ongoing struggle with kind of pervasive anxiety, my peace being, that I wanted being destroyed, that the gospel became good news to me. Uh, I loved sports, and I loved being in shape, and it was through an ongoing struggle with injury that um, I ex- began to experience the good news of the gospel. I have a need. I, I, I need uh, this, this gospel. And so when suffering comes, we, we uncover uh, clearly what these things are. There's no mistake in it. When the moth and rust and theft come and take them away, um, we see them for what they are. In other words, Jesus is asking us, what could you possibly lay up for yourself in this life that cannot be taken away by suffering? What could you possibly lay up? And so, what are we treasuring? And, and how's it going? How's it going? How, how are these things doing at meeting the deepest needs of our souls and, and wounds that can only be healed by treasuring uh, intimacy with the Father, the healing that comes from that relationship? He says, only a foolish person, lovingly, he says... <laughs> Only a foolish person makes this kind of investment on a planet that is giving way beneath you and on which there is utter chaos and suffering. And it's not a matter of if these things will happen, but when. When will they happen? And they certainly will. Certainly will. And um, just this week, Silicon Valley Bank just collapsed because of inappropriate lending with, with their deposits. This is the biggest bank to fail since the 2008 financial crisis. I pulled up a picture in the New York Times, and there's people lined up in California at the, at the ATMs trying to get their money out of the bank. Um, it, and this is the most regulated banking system that we've had in years. And, and thieves break in and steal. And he says, instead of this, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroy, and where thieves um, do not break in and steal. So what kind of treasure is he talking about with this heavenly treasure? And how do we lay up that kind instead? And he mentions heaven. Well, who is in heaven? Um, we know that uh, repeatedly we're told here that the Father, he's our Father who is in heaven. And so it seems that the treasure in heaven concept functions here kind of in the same way that uh, the, the sentence, your Father who sees in secret will reward you, functioned previously. 
that um, I think when we, read, when we read the word heaven, we think long into the future. Like, when I go to heaven, I will be rewarded in some mysterious way by God uh, for the good things that I've done. I think there is a sense in which that is, obviously, that is true. Um, but the kingdom of heaven concept in Matthew's gospel seems to also be something that is, um, it, it's in the present moment. It's breaking into your present moment now. Um, for example, in Matthew 3, Jesus begins his, his public ministry, and it, he begins with this statement, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's at hand. So it seems um, that this, this concept of heaven is in, in our present moment, that something of heaven breaks into my life when I go into my room, for example, and pray to the Father, because the reward is there um, in secret. And as Anse um, said last week so well, um, he will reward you by being your Father, by being your Father. This is the treasure that suffering can never take away from us. As First Peter 1 describes our inheritance as Christians as imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. It's something in the future, and it can also break into our, our present moment. So we, we think about where the moth and rust have come in our lives. As these experiences come, um, are they turning us into the kind of person described in the Beatitudes when he begins the sermon? Um, where he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Or blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Um, something about when the treasures of our earthly lives fail us, we have an opportunity to become poor in spirit. And heaven is, op- heaven is open to us there in a very vivid way as we just say, Jesus, help. Jesus, help. Uh, that, that's poverty of, of spirit when we get to that place. And so he says, aren't, aren't you burnt out with um, trying to accumulate social reward and material reward in this life when it, it can be taken from you? It's vulnerable. Um, and we'll talk about anxiety next week in, in that therefore I tell you do not be anxious in verse 25. I've heard one pastor say that everything before that therefore is describing the cure for anxiety. Um, that um, we can experience freedom in the moment with the Father and then that, that is what Jesus wants for us. So everything in, in this section is describing what it looks like to live with no anxiety. And this rings, this rings true because we see that he's the Father who knows everything that we need uh, in the next section. In that right before the Lord's Prayer, uh, your Father already knows what you need before you ask him. So don't lay up. <laughs> just, just experience the freedom of living in the moment today with the Father. He wants us to be free from that anxiety. He seems to be concerned with the anxiety that we have around laying up security for ourselves. Uh, For example, he doesn't say, do not sinfully enjoy fleeting pleasures. Certainly he could have said that. And I I think that's definitely a concern that he has. But it's more, here the focus is our security. That's what what we're laying up, what we're uh, gathering into barns when he talks about the the birds later. Um, that, That for the future, that security that we have. And he wants us to be free from that. Just live in the moment. 
um, like freedom. And so we come to verse 21. Why are we not supposed to lay up these things on earth? And we read, there your heart will be also. Jonathan Pennington is a professor at Southern Seminary. He points out that because of the Jewish conception of the heart, this will be up on the screen behind you as the inner being, that, that part of you that, that is most you uh, and serves as the center of kind of a repository of all your deepest loves. This is the place that, that drives everything that we do in life. This is their kind of Jewish understanding of the human heart all throughout the Bible. Um, and so as a result, this is saying to us that not only what we treasure is what we really love, but what we treasure is who we are. It be, it's who we are because we have given our very, our very selves to it. Martin Luther, the reformer, put it like this. What a man loves, that is his God. What a man loves, that is his God. Um, I can remember walking uh, to basketball camp as a 14-year-old at Amherst College right across the street from my house, and I have my, my Nike basketball shoes in my backpack, and I'm wearing my slides with my Nike basketball socks because these, these basketball shoes are not going to touch anything other than hardwood basketball court. Like, I'm not going to mess up these shoes. Like These are the shoes that Kobe Bryant wore. Everybody else at camp is going to be wearing them. Um, so I, I, my heart is in this backpack. Like I'm treasuring these shoes. Um, and so, in other words, uh, what, what's happening? I, I'm thinking I may not score a single point today, but, but look at my Nikes. Look at, look, at, look at my Nikes and how they go with my Nike socks. And, and this somehow vindicates me from uh, not, not even scoring a single point. And so what's happening is I've taken something from my life that's not inherently bad and, and, and looked to it and said, you are my righteousness. You make up for all my inadequacy. And, and you must do this for me. In other words, I've taken something from my life and begun to preach a kind of gospel to myself. Tell me the story of my life in a way that helps me deal with my shame, this feeling of not being enough. Uh, you are my righteousness. So not only is it a treasure, but I'm demanding that it tell me who I am. This is a silly example, obviously, but I had just begun to do this with countless things in my life. Um, and so what about you? Um, what are we looking to in saying, you are my righteousness because you make up for all my inadequacies. This could be anything in our lives. Um, this, this is the heart condition that Jesus has been di diagnosing us with. Um, in Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve, they choose to sin in the garden and eat the fruit, and they hide from God. Uh, I sometimes think about this simple question that God asks as he's walking towards them um, in the garden. He simply asks, where are you? Where are you? Uh, it's not just that you've disobeyed me, but where are you? We had fellowship, you and I, and now I've lost you. Where are you? And it's just this very simple um, question that that is the condition of, that, we're, that we're in because of our sin, that we love all the wrong things. They begin to become constituent to who we are because we give them ourselves and we estrange ourselves from, from God, our creator. So that's the treasure. So now the I, the I. And look there at verse, verse 22, 23. 
The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. I think we know just intuitively that the eye is unlike any other, other part of our bodies, that we interface with the world largely through our eyes. And so if our bodies are like a house, the eyes are almost like a window. Uh, you can look out and you can look in and you can tell a lot about what's inside uh, by looking in. You can tell a lot about someone, how someone's doing just by looking them in the eyes as we, as we speak to them. And so he moves from talking about something metaphysical uh, our hearts is this metaphysical concept, and he, he turns to something that's actually in our anatomy, uh, the, in the, the physical eye, and he says it's the lamp of the body. Um, it seems that the human eye, like the human heart, is deeply revealing about who we are, similar to the heart. Um, and so, it, again, as Don Carson points this out in his commentary, that the word hapless, which in the ESV you see there is healthy, if your eye is healthy, more closely means single or sound, implying a, a singularity of devotion. Um, and so this is a looking to God uh, with, 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 with undivided attention, with devotion. And so the King James is actually, um, if your eye is single, your whole body will be full of light. Um, and so as a result, when I look to God with the heart devotion and, and continuously turn my gaze to him, my experience and my body are illuminated. And with the, the knowledge of God that I, I see when I look at him, I, I have a knowledge of self because all the information about who I am and what my story is comes from God and as I turn my gaze to him. Um, but, he, but he says, if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. When I begin to do this with anything other than God, looking to it, just like the shoes, tell me my story, help me understand my experience, it results in darkness and distortion and illusion. I am, I'm, I'm, I'm living in an illusory world that is largely of my own making. Again, I'll go back to Genesis 3 in the garden. It says that Eve saw the fruit and it was a delight to the eyes and desirable for gaining wisdom. Um, it's also interesting that it says, when they eat the fruit, their eyes were opened, and they knew that they were naked. Before, they'd, they'd been looking to God with singularity of love and devotion, and now they've turned and looked to something else, and the result is confusion, darkness, and shame. In Matthew 13, um, this will be on a slide as well, when the disciples ask Jesus why he's speaking to everyone in parables, he, he takes something from Isaiah, and he says, uh, he quotes Isaiah, For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their eyes, excuse me, with their ears they can barely hear, and with their eyes they have closed. Lest, lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. So we notice in the language he's connecting the heart with the eyes. Um, the implication is that our heart follows after those things that are engaged with through the senses. So we're under no illusion that um, there's no connection between what's in our, our, our metaphysical nature of our soul and what's in our body. There is some kind of profound connection between those two things as we s we're seeing here. Um, this past week I went to see a movie in theaters with some friends and um, it's amazing. They always seem to sneak in like some horror movie trailers before this fairly innocent movie that you're seeing. Um, and so <laughs> these trailers come on, and they're very disturbing. And so 
I look away, right, and I notice all my three friends around me are also looking away. We're, like, looking at each other and even, like, covering our ears. Um, it w- it, but then when our movie comes on, we're looking at it with the singularity of, okay, what is this story? What's going on? And we're, we're undivided attention to this movie that we came to see. Why? Uh, because it's very vivid. It's very intuitive. It's almost, it's, it's embodied knowledge um, that is ingrained in us. I don't want to take these images and symbols um, through my eyes because I understand the connection between my, my, my uh, physiology and my metaphysical nature, my heart, that these things will flow into my heart and become constituent to, to who I am inside. It's embodied. We understand that profound connection. And I think Jesus knows and so he uses the eye. It's a very powerful uh, illustration. If your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. So the heart healing that we need will come when we look at the one who created us. All the information about who we are comes from him alone. Um, Jesus knows this from his secret life with the Father. In John 5, John chapter 5, Jesus says this, It'll be up behind me. Truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. But uh, for whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. For the father loves the son and shows him all that he himself is doing. So Jesus himself, in order for his experience to be illuminated as a human, he must look at his father, look at his heavenly father and take his cues from him. He shows him all that he himself is doing. This is the kind of illumination that happens in the secret life with the Father uh, that that Jesus models for us, but he also invites us into. Jesus understands, again, that our problem is not just behavior, but that we love the wrong things. And because we love the wrong things, we, we look at them and we mirror them. And when this is done with anything other than God, the result is... Uh, darkness and illusion. I'm now living in a distorted world that is largely of my own making. So it's through things like um, the practice of reading the scripture, uh, in particular reading the Bible as a narrative. It's a story about God and about humans. And what is the, it's, it's the correct story of who I am. And so I, I can take in the symbols, uh, take them in, through my eyes, into my heart, and then it's like a window. I, I, all of a sudden, I'm able to understand my, ex, my lived experience. Tell me the, the correct story. So we also look at the Father in the secret place uh, through prayer. We've, we talked about prayer a few weeks ago, and it, we said we want to create a space where we can go be with the Father, throw our phones in the other room, and just be with him. And it is there that he says, just tell me everything. Um, I, I want to dialogue with you. And that's, that's looking to the Father. It's looking at the Father. And the result will be illumination. That sets us up for how he will now, now tell us uh, that these things that we treasure, that we give our hearts and look to with our eyes for meaning will ultimately master us. Um, the things that we treasure, we look at, and those things will ultimately master us. So the master... No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. I think when you look at 19 to 24, 
uh, it seems a bit disconnected. It seems like a strange place for that section about the eye, for example, um, between two sections that are seem to be talking about treasure. But this final verse helps us to kind of pull the strands together in 19 to 24 because we see that what we treasure is, we've seen that what we treasure has our hearts. And because it has our hearts, we will look to these things with a singularity of devotion. And whatever that is, whatever that thing is, will finally master us. So it seems this is kind of a, a summary statement that the heart follows the eye, follows the treasure, which becomes the master. The heart follows the eye, follows the treasure, becomes the master. And so we notice this language of love and hate. Love and hate, very strong language. No one can serve two masters. He will hate the one or, and love the other or be devoted to the one and despise the other. Um, so he says that money can become our master. And what, what, do, what do masters do? They, they make demands on us. And any master that you have is one that you must obey or else. And presumably there, there's going to be consequences if you don't. He paints this picture of a, a master that we love, but that we're, we're ultimately serving to, and that we must obey. So when Jesus, when he, when he talks about money, and he talks about money more than any other topic in the, in the Gospels. Uh, and for example, when he says things in, in, Luke, like in Luke 18, it is harder for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven than for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. I think at least I immediately think it's going to be very difficult for Elon Musk to go to heaven. Like, uh, we, we think of people that are rich relative to us. Uh, but in this text, we begin to understand that he's saying Money is not inherently evil, but that we are in danger of giving our, our heart devotion to it. Um, that um, we're, we're in danger of serving it instead of God. And so as a result of this, he's saying that anyone with any kind of money, any amount of money, is in danger of this across the board. So Because money can become a, a spiritual trap. Um, so he, he looks at the, at the poor person and the rich person, and they're different scenarios. We basically ask this, the Genesis 3 question, where are you? Where are you? Who are you serving? Because it doesn't matter how much money you, you actually have, but um, have you given me your inner being? Have you given me your heart or not? Or are you serving money? Um, so I've, I've tried to reflect on my own relationship with money this week, and I wanted to kind of simplify it into a sentence because it's very complicated. But And what I came up with is that Money is the medium, one of the mediums I use to create the world that I want. Money is one of the mediums I use to try to create the world that I want. And it's almost like I'm, I'm painting my life on a canvas, and I have an image in my heart of what I want this life to look like. Um, and, and money is one of the paints on my palette, so to speak, that I use to do this. But it's never quite how I thought it would look. Um, it never comes out the way I want and suffering comes, and the paint is kind of running down the canvas, but I can't let go of this image that I, I'm trying to create. Why? Because I'm enslaved to, to this image of what I, what I think my life should look like. Not only that, but I can experience spiritual burnout because it, it's, it makes constant demands on me that I make more sacrifices to it, and it never ends. It never brings me to a place of flourishing. 
um, I'm constantly serving it. And so this will be on a slide as well. When we serve money as master, we tend to overspend it, overwork ourselves trying to make more of it, manipulate or steal to get it, trust in it wrongly for security, and refuse to give it away. So this, this looks very different for, for everyone. Um, I was kind of working through the application. I was talking to my friend Daniel, who's actually here today, uh, trying to figure out what's a, how can we come down on something specific. And uh, I was like, this isn't really working because clearly you have a, a, healthy, a healthier relationship to money than I do. This is not really, really helping me very much. So I think I've, I've tried to keep it general. So maybe an application that I want to consider this week, and please pray for me, and, and I want to talk about this with you, is what would it look like for, for me to look at the money and possessions that I have and ask, firstly, what's going on? <laughs> what's going on here? And what is, my, what is this relationship with money? Tell me about my heart. What's, what does this data tell me about where my heart is today? And there's no condemnation. I just, I'm just observing the, the, the financial activity of my life, you know, looking at my credit card statement. What is this telling me? Um, and then with, with God as my master, asking, um, how, how, what does it look like to take my money and possessions and say, your will be done, uh, like in the Lord's Prayer. Your will be done and not my will. And this looks different. For, it'll look different for everyone. Um, and so, and then I think I have another slide. God is master. Uh, and then I think the result will be um, the pressure of these things will be, will be off of us. Um, and then it'll result in our flourishing. We'll have more intimacy with the Father, and he's the Father who, who meets our needs. Um, what kind of master is God? He's the master who is also our Father. And we notice how this language appears twice, once right before the Lord's Prayer and once in, in the rest of chapter 6. Uh, for example, 6 verse 8, your Father knows what you need before you ask him. And then in 6.32, your father, referring to our earthly needs, knows that you need them all. And so we think of God in this way, that he's our master and we serve him, but he's, he's our loving father who has great compassion for us. All the demands that he makes on us are for our good, and they promote uh, not burnout, but flourishing as opposed to money. Or do we think of God in the same way that we think of our, our, our other masters, like money, that they make demands on us, and it never ends. They make constant um, sacrifices to them. Or do we understand God as he truly is? He's a master that we serve, uh, yes, but one whom we love, the language of love. And we love him so much that it makes our relationship to money look like hate in comparison, because he is our father, and he has great compassion for us. And so, remember how we said in the beginning that we need inside-out righteousness. Um, we, we have to be perfect the way that God is perfect. The, the kind of perfection that per penetrates us all the way to who we are in, in our hearts. But what, what I've seen here is I don't have this, this perfection. I don't have the kind of inside-out righteousness that I need um, to have a secret life, to go into that secret life with the Father. And after lis listening to these images that Jesus gives us here, it seems, we're saying, my heart condition is, it seems inoperable. There's no apparent cure for this condition. I've loved all the wrong things and looked at them and been mastered by them. Um, 
But um, we look at Jesus Christ, uh, son, and he's a perfect son. He's a perfect son. And a few chapters before this, um, God said, God the Father says about Jesus, this is my beloved son, uh, when he's baptized. He then immediately goes in, into the wilderness um, where he is fasting and praying. He's praying and fasting. And then um, almost in the same chronological order of the content of this sermon, he is tempted with earthly treasure. He's tempted with earthly treasure. Uh, Satan comes to him and he says, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the earth. I'll give you all this earthly treasure that I have dominion over if you will just fall down and worship me. Um, What does Jesus say? He quotes Deuteronomy 6.13 and says, You shall worship the Lord your God and in him only shall you serve. Him only shall you serve. That is inside-out righteousness. That is righteousness that originates from a love for God in the heart, that treasures him in the inner being, that uh, looks to him with devotion, and, and, and is mastered only by him. And then something strange happens. Um, Jesus goes to the cross to die. And on the cross, he cries out in his death, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you forsaken me? He's looking for the secret life with the Father that he once knew, and instead of this, he received in, into himself the full anger of, of God. So we look at the story of the gospel again and think, how does this happen? How does this happen? Jesus really loves his Father. He really loves his Father, and I've loved all the wrong things my whole life. And how could Jesus go from a secret life with the Father, to a public death on a cross uh, for me. And we realize that this story has something to do with us. Um, that if we believe in this message, uh, what Jesus has done for us, we trust in Christ to save us. The heaven is open for us. Secret life is available. It's an eternal secret life of intimacy with the Father. The Father loves Jesus. But he crushed him on the cross in order to give us this life, to give us healing, to give us salvation. Jesus rose from the dead after three days in victory. Um, and so this is all, this is all along what's, what was in, anticipated, for example, by the prophet Jeremiah. In Jeremiah 31, uh, he writes, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. That is the kind of heart surgery that we need. And not just to love God with, in a pretense with our behavior, but with our entire being. And, and this is, he's writing about the new covenant. Jesus died to make this happen for us. Uh, and so if you're here today and you're not, a Christ, you're not yet a Christian, what are you treasuring? And, and how's it going? How's it going? Isn't it strange to go through life and feel enslaved to, to things that never give flourishing, to feel longings in your soul that, that cannot be satisfied? Um, and will you, will you ask someone here uh, about what it means to turn to Jesus in faith and trust in him? If you're a Christian in the room, um, what are you treasuring, and how's it going? How's it going? We want to look into the gospel for renewal, and this is renewal that I desperately need. 
um, also understanding that God is our master, uh, but he is also our father, and he has great compassion for us. Let's pray together. Father, we do come before you and confess that we have treasured the wrong things. We have, our lives are a story of treasuring the wrong things and looking at the wrong things and being ultimately enslaved to them. And we thank you for this teaching that you you call us into a, a secret life with your father. And he, he's our father because you, you died, uh, Jesus, for us and, and you were cut off from this secret life to, to bring us into it. We humbly ask you for, for help, for help. Um, when suffering comes, um, help us to become poor in spirit, humble ourselves under your, your mighty hand and, and trust in you alone. And would you, would you give us the renewal that this secret life brings, um, the freedom from anxiety. We want to, even today, this Sunday, we want to just live in the moment with you not anxious about the future, not, not regretting uh, things in our past, uh, but just come to you for healing and, 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 and love you from, from the deepest place in our hearts. And we pray these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.